Well, welcome to the Think Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Sean Fable, and this is the podcast that brings together patients and professionals uh, to help you make more informed decisions for your healthcare needs. In the studio today, I've got a guest. I've got a gentleman called Dr. David Wordsworth. David. David's a GP, works in GP land, if that's what we call it. But he's also had experience working as an emergency medicine registrar and has also been an orthopedic registrar in a previous life. David, welcome. Oh, thank you very much, Sean. Thanks for inviting me. So tell me then about your uh, varied, illustrious career. What, what's, what's kind of brought you here? Tell me about the journey, first of all. Uh, well, maybe if I to deceive, but um, so I qualified in 2005 and um, as always, already a graduate entry, entrant at that point. Uh, and then um, yeah, I did a BSc in biomedical science. And I was, at that point, I was pretty, pretty interested in um, orthopedics, actually, in science, uh, in terms of the science of arthroplasty, etc., uh, because I I kind of got the impression, even maybe even at that stage, that um, I wanted to look at after people from cradle to grave, which is a bit of an Anya and Bevan nice. <laughs> idea. And I think all three weeks does certainly do that to its credit. But um, maybe I wanted a greater totality of care, but it, it took me a while to realise that. So um, I did basic surgical training. I did um, a significant part of higher surgical training too, uh, and then um, kind of realised that um, I had other interests, other strengths, and um, and that quality improvement was also uh, an important part of my practice. So I worked for the CQC briefly, and then I worked abroad, and I, I think that's how we met. And then um, I, I found myself in Lincolnshire. Right. Okay. Well, welcome back to Lincolnshire. Anyway, you're not a Lincolnshire boy then yourself, or no, no, Sean. I, I think, as as you well know, I'm. Closer to your kith and kin, aren't I? <laughs> I'm the less glamorous side of Sheffield, but I think yeah. I think we all know what we mean. Okay, right. Well, I'm from the glamorous side of Sheffield. That's what I like to think, anyway. How could you um, not be? <laughs> I know. I don't. I don't really know which uh, which is the glamorous side, but but anyway. Uh, so you're now working as a general practitioner. Uh, I have seen you though working in emergency medicine. What, yeah. Why were you there? So, what, what, why why did you do emergency medicine yes. or why am I doing both? No, no, why did you, uh, why were you working in emergency medicine? Because um, I, I find it genuinely interesting. I think there's a lot of utility in unscheduled care and there's, there's so, so many terms that are bounced around on there that you don't own anymore. But I think unscheduled care is one of those things. I think the only thing that people in primary care and uh, and uh, emergency medicine have is unscheduled care because people turn up and they want a solution. So I, I thought that was a natural strength. Um, I wasn't really maybe the world's best majors medic, but um, there's certainly a fairly impressive unmet need in terms of people who have minors care, uh, people who attend the emergency department with um, maybe primary care needs, etc. that I, I sometimes don't think that get the best care. Right, okay. So worked in emergency medicine, now working in general practice. You're a fully qualified general practitioner uh, and you've been doing that for a while now. Now, I was quite interested because you've got the experience in emergency care. You've also got the experience in general practice. Where do you see the two disciplines meet? So I've been involved in a bit of work recently about um, unscheduled care. I think the Royal College of Emergency Medicine and NHS England have this idea that essentially anyone who, who isn't on a trolley can have some something called ambulatory care and I think I think that's a noble preposition I have no problems with that I think it's a good idea but um, I think the resources staffing skill mix etc for that 
need uh, need some work i think it's I, I genuinely think it's a good idea but i think um i don't think it's necessarily something that matt hancock can say okay we need this in in the next fiscal year because it isn't going to happen um if I were going to be excoriatingly candid, I would say that the Royal College of Emergency Medicine uh, find um, majors um, and the the big ticket items of emergency medicine quite sexy. And I think that some practitioners who do the minors do what could be called dog work. They might have felt a bit left behind by both the RCHEM syllabus by the training for other doctors and then it's kind of picked up in a patchwork isn't it by other 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 practitioners who have that skill mix who can interpret radiographs who uh who know what to do with a say a mallet finger and that increasingly few people do yeah i think sometimes um something i I call scope of practice what i find interesting you know where where general practice and emergency medicine sort of meet is where the line between the two is because as you said both are unscheduled care um as an emergency medicine practitioner that's my bread and butter our syllabus my training is geared more towards emergency patients and by emergency patients i often like to use the phrase life and limb threatening but we do accident and emergency in the uk so we also deal with injuries traditionally that's why we've had an a and e accidents and emergency care now what constitutes an emergency there's a gray line this is what we find some difficulty with and some emergency physicians have a hard line on what they consider to be an emergency some general practitioners have a different line. Somewhere between the two, there's there's a meeting place. Um, I And I talk about things I call scope of practice. The issue I have myself with this line between the two is what I'm good at. Because as an emergency trained doctor, I like to believe I'm good at emergency medicine, but we'll, we'll let other people judge that. But what I'm not very good at is general practice. And general practice is difficult. It's a difficult profession, I think. It's a difficult occupation. But I'm not very, very good at general practice. So I think sometimes if we see in the emergency department patients who are more general practice, I feel as though um, I don't have the scope of practice to help them. And sometimes patients will get the wrong level of care. Do you agree with that? Uh, absolutely, t- entirely. Because, and the reason I say that is because the the patients then kind of have that this kind of surrogacy of idea where they're like, oh gosh, do I need to see my GP or do do yes. I need to see any? Uh, you know, and um, I as much as you love it, I don't think they've really that engaged with the choose wisely campaign in my yes. in my opinion. So yeah, definitely, I think you need a, a blended care model um, in. The place where they have contact with healthcare, and uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, they're talking more about having like a one 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 plus service, and um, I, I think that needs to be a very robust service that needs to be evidenced. I'm going to go out on a limb a little bit. I think um, we are in the middle of a pandemic. It's scary, and I think there's been a lot of paradigm shifts about how we provide care. But yes. equally, the other side of that is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater um certainly with a primary care hat on um not everything is done by phone and not everything is done by video and people need a human touch and i think probably the bears a brunt of that too so i think moving forward i think a, a blended care model with experienced primary care physicians and ed physicians working and it is a cliche but something you would describe as harmony would be very useful 
Yeah, that's right. I think there has been a shift in the model. I think the model was shifting uh, prior to the COVID pandemic as well. What I've seen uh, over my short but illustrious career as an emergency department consultant, uh, it has been a change in presentation. Um, You know, when I first, I can remember doing uh, voluntary work in the 1990s, I remember it well, and uh, I can remember my SHO that was on at night and I came to do voluntary work with him. And there was one SHO, uh, Dr. Mike Harding, if he's still out there, my friend, but one SHO, uh, and he operated the department all night and he went to bed at around about half past 12 or one o'clock and never saw a patient all night. I actually went to work in that same department met 10 years later as an emergency doctor. Um, And I think there was three doctors on all night and they were flat out all night. And when I spoke to the lead consultant there, uh, Mr. Salamani, who had been there for many, many years, he said that there'd not actually been uh, an increase in the population of the area or the catchment area. So it really was a patient choice that now patients were choosing to come to the emergency department And I think this has been a shift that we've seen increasing over years, and it's what patients are wanting to do. And I often say, sometimes as healthcare professionals, we want patients to do what we want them to do. But in actual fact, the patients are the people who pay their national insurance. This is their service. It's their money. Um, And patients choose whether that's by voice or by feet where they want to do. So I think what's happening in healthcare service now is we're trying to shift what we do so we can provide the care that the public are are seeking. Uh, At the moment, because people, I believe, want the convenience of being able to be seen very, very quickly, um, so they tend to turn up to the emergency department, which is open door, because you never know when you're going to have a car accident. The issue with that, of course, has been traditionally that's full of emergency doctors who are rubbish with bad sore throats and things like that. But now we're trying to shift the care model so that we can meet the need of those patients that are walking through the door. And you've had some involvement in that, I understand. Yeah, I've always been really sympathetic, really, uh, you know, uh, keen to engage the emergency department model of care in terms of these are patients that come in and do have an unscheduled care. But yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I think people have been voting with their feet. Um, and it's almost about contract, isn't it? Because um, it's about primary and secondary care. And I think you sometimes need to distill these things down. And I think with a GMS contract, um, the GMS contract is half eight to half six, I think. Uh, I'm very happy to be corrected. But um, the patients don't understand that. I think the movements towards addressing the issues you've you've highlighted um, are are embryonic. I think everyone would agree with that. But I think um, you know if if you look at the local care model, they've started employing GPs um, on a forty hour a week model with them, um, thirty two hours of contact time. So I, I I think they're getting there, but I do, <laughs> I don't think anyone ever told the patients. I don't think anyone ever told the patients. Yes. So you know you won't see a community dermatologist or you won't see a GP. In uh, I, I I don't think they were they have signed up that message, and I, it's it's a very elegant point. But is it our problem or is it their problem? Did we not inform them, or do they have an endless right of expectation? I, I'm not sure what the correct answer is. Yeah, I, I think it's probably more. I mean, obviously, we we need to listen to what the public expect from their healthcare service, but at the same time. I think sometimes the public need to know where they can access the the help that they need. And I often say, and it's when people come to the emergency department, 
and I feel as though they're in the wrong place. It's not the wrong place for me, it's the wrong place for the patient. So I like then to signpost them uh, to go to the correct place. Uh, One of the things I think sometimes patients don't realise here is we've actually got a phenomenal uh, primary care system here. You know, I think we're world leaders in primary care. And And we differ from a lot of countries, not all, in the fact that we have this primary care model. And what that means, that means that the care, the primary care, and that's not just family medicine, your primary health care needs are met in the community. And there's good reasons for that, because community medicine is more convenient, it's nicer, it's nicer to turn up to an appointed appointment um, in your clothes than to be admitted and seen in hospital in your dressing gown. Uh, and there's evidence as well that patients who are treated in the community do better than patients who are treated on a hospital bed. So So we've developed this fantastic primary care model where most things, but not all things, can be met in primary care. And the king or the queen of primary care is your general practitioner. Um, Those are the people who are championing your care out there in the community. And what secondary care is supposed to be, which traditionally is hospital care, uh, that is supposed to be for patients who are unable to be treated in the community um, and must be treated in hospitals. So certain treatments cannot happen in the community or patients are simply too sick to be uh, advised to go back home. Um, but I think sometimes the public don't understand that. There's still a belief that people think that the consultants are in the hospital So if they want the proper medicine, that's the place that they go. And I think sometimes that that affects patients' reasoning with their choice of where to go when they're unwell sometimes. Would you agree with that? From my experiences of being a fairly freshly cooked GP, people really like the human touch. You don't hear people saying disparaging remarks about their own general practitioners generally. Uh, They like to see a human face. Um, So I think... Having been, uh, you know, uh, a hospital lot and uh, I would humbly suggest a fairly beginner GP, I think they are very different roles, but um, one is relationship driven and one is maybe more diagnostically driven. And I don't think patients always necessarily view one better than the other. So um, do they come to any for consult and opinion? I'm sure sometimes they do. Um, but in terms of a relationship about how they can feel safe and cared for uh, and the more holistic things, then I think that almost invariably they do go to their GP or something yes. that's a bit more community-based. And uh, yeah, of course, I would encourage that. And I'd never blame blame them for that either. So you moved from um, secondary care, orthopaedic surgery, did some work in emergency department, you went to work in general practice. What was the biggest shock to you about general practice? What was very different to what you was anticipating when you went there? I just sat there for three weeks, honestly, Sean. It was amazing. Uh, I, I give credit to my trainer, Paul Fitzgerald, at this point. I didn't, I didn't even know what was wrong with them. Yeah. And, and they'd have these ideas and concerns and expectations that really which I think is a was a pretty new low for an ex-orthopaedic surgeon. Yeah, that's right. And of course, normally as an orthopaedic surgeon, it's filtered traffic, isn't it? So <laughs> right. you know, it's, it's usually obvious what's wrong with them for a start. And uh, uh, and if you're not able to make an obvious diagnosis, somebody else already made it for you and referred it on to you. 
The issue with patients as they walk in is uh, it's a completely different skill. Mm. Um, you know, patients come with hidden agendas. They don't always come with the presentation you think they're coming with. Mm. Um, and I think for general practitioners, it's an important skill to be able to sit and listen and try and figure out what exactly that patient's concerns are. We spoke about ICE. Ideas, concerns and expectations for anybody who doesn't work in healthcare uh, is a tool that many doctors will use uh, to try and find out the reason why people are presenting because people don't just present purely with, look doc, here's a big lump on my arm, can you chop it off? People come with all sorts of concerns that sometimes they're not very forward in, in bringing to us and it takes a while to get to. Those are those soft skills that take a while, but a lot of that is general practice. Did it take a hardened orthopedic surgeon that's as strong as an ox and nearly as bright? Did it take you a while uh, to convert your uh, your thought process? Or did you feel as though you were already practicing that kind of medicine? <laughs> You've drawn me down a very unhappy cul-de-sac, but um, I think the, the, the most uh, the most most polite way of uh, addressing that would be um you know i find new horizons and uh and um i so i had a, i had a new trainer uh, called susie and she's an absolute love and we we just got on and we found our own true north and i do wonder whether i'm not her very old massive child right. as a result of that but I think your training is, is 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 like a menu, isn't it? And you take the bits from your trainers that you want, and the good bits. And I, I was absolutely flattered to have uh, Susie Goff and Kevin Lee as fantastic primary care trainers. So, um, I think I'm probably two thirds, eighty percent of them. And uh, you know, I'd be. I, th I think that's very flattering to me. I think I'm trying to be them, but is that not what people do? I think, yeah, I think definitely, you know, as uh, when I was a trainee, you you have mentors, people who that you have a great deal of respect for, uh, often as people and professionally. And then you think, I'd like to be that person. I'd like to be how they practice. Uh, you never quite are, but then hopefully some magic happens and you become your own inspirational doctor. That's, you know, that's where I'm hoping that happens. And I'm sure you will, David, uh, one day. Gosh, I've had my own work. <laughs> I had my own words original moment here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, excellent. So, so yeah, so quite a change for you. But yeah, you sound like you're enjoying the new challenges that general practice is bringing. Up. Where do you th where do you see your future going? So, in terms of enjoying the practice, yeah, I really have actually. Like you, um, uh, you, you just do things that have, uh, have no part to your training, and I don't think it was a policy of my training. But you, you end up giving expectant medicines in remote villages uh you know um giving more morphine it's and, and i'm not being that guy but i think it's one thing to give morphine 20 milligrams in an ISA and ED department where you've got pulse oximetry a lovely nurse and you're in recess and and to do it in someone's converted barn yes. in lincolnshire norfolk i mean that is quite a different matter so um you kind of I don't know, it's your moment to shine, isn't it? And that's used as a lazy euphemism. So um, so that's where I am now, and I think that's been more than enough. Um, what do I see myself in five years? Well, okay, so I really still strongly believe in uh, partnership as a model. I think people need to engage in it. It's economically uh, useful. Uh, it, it, patients like it, doctors like it you know where you are and you get have stability. And I think that's good for everybody in that circle. So what do you mean by partnership? 
So um, I think the thing that I would say to secondary care doctors having left them is that they don't really understand what partnership is. And I think that's a really great question. Partnership is you have a risk. You, You take a contract from a body, which is usually NHS England, to run a service and then you prescribe to them which services you will offer and whether you offer a certain services um which form part of what we call the general medical services contract or whether you wish to offer a bit more which is um, a bit extended such as contraception or services to other populations such as um, people in prisons or people who are violent etc so they all attract different uh, contracts and 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 uh, and they're differently negotiated and i think um you as a gp you have to find a practice that has a certain amount of patience that where you can live with the partners that you like the patients that you're working with because it's kind of like a marriage and that it makes sense to you um and sometimes it's very well remunerated and and some gps are very keen on that and some people um aren't that bothered about the metrics and the optics but they like being a traditional gp and everything in the middle is fine and uh, there's no right answer and i think in secondary care in some ways i might humbly suggest um you never have these problems and you never have these challenges and actually that's not a bad thing because you are employed from a, a pension point of view as a medical officer you do sessional work it's um, all very binary and if you choose to do pi- private work then you do that and that's an entirely separate issue but that certainly isn't the case in primary care uh you know if you choose to do out of hours or work for a ccg or you know and and then work for a a a, a practice yourself then essentially there's three different contracts there so actually it is uh a lot more challenging than i think other doctors would realize yes okay I believe, um, you know, I've always thought that general practice is quite challenging. Uh, it's a challenging occupation to be in. Coming from secondary care, uh, looking now with a retrospectoscope at how things are done in secondary care, what, um, is there any advice that you'd give now as a general practitioner of you know, things that you think are done badly in secondary care that you feel as though should be changed, could be done better? or Probably discharge summaries and, like, what yeah. you have changed in terms of the care, I, I should imagine you feel the same, Sean, because yeah. sometimes, like, uh, there was a, there was, what was the guy who was the previous professor of, uh, the president of the emergency medicine, Cliff, somebody? Don't ask me a question that I'm supposed to know the answer to <laughs> on my own podcast, David. <laughs> so there's a really good emergency physician who had a lot of time for, who's the president of the previous Royal, Royal College, and I think it's, 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 he said, you're often information poor, and I think, sadly, many times so out of our gps and everyone else you don't have access to the same systems uh you know there's emis there's system one there's clio there's whatever your local trust has so there's four or five systems even where i work and uh, it isn't it isn't bound up so don't make the assumption that your gp knows those things so actually the better quality of a discharge summary that does have the medicines and the significant comorbidities and and the changes in medicine and they're really really important because it's it's dangerous to assume that other people know what you've changed yeah 
I'd agree. I one of my criticisms about healthcare in general is communication. I think healthcare we're we're poor communicators, very very poor. Um, we communicate with each other poorly on the telephone. We can we communicate with each other poorly by letters and discharge summaries. It's a constant criticism by general practice that we receive in the emergency department. Yet seems to be something that doesn't seem to get changed a great deal. Um, and we have a lack of information comes the other way sometimes. We get patients referred to us and little information as to why they're referred and stuff. And I do think that with all the marvellous IT systems we have these days, that people should start concentrating on more between uh, communications between professionals. You know, mm. I, I like to know um, you as a general practitioner, if you've sent somebody to the emergency department, I want to know what your concerns are, your ideas, concerns and expectations, because it's important. Um, and it's important to know where your anxiety lies so that I can address that too and and vice versa. Now, when uh, we discharge patients from the emergency department, um, we often type a little letter. It's often very, very quick because we're always under the pressure to get on to the next patient. Do you receive those quickly or do you only see those letters as and when a patient comes in, needs your help, and then you look into their records? Um, so my generic experience seems to be that they are received quite quickly and then they get scanned um but then they get scanned onto usually the gp system which is system one in, in my experience um they don't tend to be coded that well so you don't necessarily know why they were done uh, like why they physically turned up for that care um and if that's linked to a diagnosis you don't necessarily know that either um so <sighs> It's not the end of the world. It's, it's a lot better than nothing, but um, it, it, it could be better still. Um, I, I, I don't even know what the answer to this is. Um, I've, as, as a home visiting service, I've literally had a piece of A4 paper and a stamp and called the called an ambulance. And sometimes I haven't even had the right phone number. So it isn't it isn't incredibly twenty first century. Mm. Sometimes I think maybe, you know, we, we're wandering around from the old basics too much, like a telephone call. And sometimes I think there's nothing that conveys information like an actual chat or a call. You know, if I, if I, if I ever I get calls from general practitioners, which are rare but do happen, uh, you can really pick up the information, you know, and the concerns of that general practitioner and have an understanding of, uh, of of why they're worried. But we don't do that very often anymore. We tend not to telephone each other. I don't get a lot of telephone calls from general practice, and, and I'm sure you don't get many back from your local emergency department. I don't think I've ever had one. Um, I think we're all hard to contact, though, aren't we? You can't get past the secretary, you know. So from GP to GP, uh, yeah, they're not the easiest. You need a relationship with them. Yeah, uh, yeah. it won't be a first call thing, yeah, probably. The issue for me is, uh, you know, patients need to be heard. They need, I think, they need to be able to address a medical practitioner uh, reasonably easily. I don't think there should be big barriers for patients to speak to practitioners. But I do think it's important that we um, we signpost uh, patients 
properly because uh, I mentioned this uh, at the beginning of this podcast that uh, I'm often not the right practitioner to give them the right advice about certain medical problems. And signposting, I think, is something that's quite important. If we get patients um, speaking to the right practitioner for the right things, um, I think that's key. I don't know why we've gone over that bit again there, David, but... Maybe because I push you back onto it, Sean, because uh, I think it's a heavy burden we both bear. So, I mean, what would your vision of a of a of a twenty first century emergency department in this you know the second quarter of the of the twenty first century look like? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I'll tell you what my, what my thoughts are. My thoughts are now the emergency department, the front door should be general practice and I believe that now so I believe that no longer should patients be able to get direct access straight into the emergency department unless brought in by another healthcare professional like an ambulance okay or to come in through the front door I think that way GPs are better able to stream what they can deal with what they've been dealing with for many many years in the community and can deal with that at the front door and that any patient they feel that needs to come to an emergency practitioner, and that's not necessarily um, because the patient's challenging and needs to see somebody in secondary care, because there's there's a difference. I think if uh, if a patient comes in, for example, who needs to see an orthopedic surgeon for something, that general practitioner should be able to refer directly to orthopedics. There has to be a change in the culture amongst secondary care then where they become happier to receive uh, referrals because my observation is sometimes it can be challenging for GPs, it can be challenging for emergency physicians uh, to make referrals because there's a culture sometimes as to not wanting to receive um, certain presentations. Uh, And I think the emergency department should be reserved to patients who require immediate treatments will have a direct effect on the outcome uh, because I think that's what we do well. So the risk in the emergency department is higher. We do riskier treatments. We do treatments people wouldn't want us to do if they were well. We do them in risky circumstances because the risk balance is different. You know, we, we're supposed to be dealing with patients that if we don't treat very, very quickly, we'll have a negative outcome because of that. So we'll do procedures, say, for example, in the emergency room, like a rapid sequence induction, which for those who don't know what that is, that's basically anesthetizing somebody and putting them to sleep. Those kind of procedures are... Uh, can be quite risky so normally need to be done by qualified anaesthetists who do these procedures every single day we don't do them every day so we are less uh, skilled at doing them although we know how to do them but we have to do them sometimes in the emergency department because if we don't do them the patient will have a bad outcome they may die so you get a different risk balance so I might put somebody to sleep in the emergency department but you wouldn't want me putting you to sleep if mm. you just come in to have your wisdom teeth taken out you know it would be an unacceptable risk so that's what we do in the emergency department so which is I'm a big believer again in what I call scope of practice I'm a big believer in keep the sick people for the emergency practitioners. We can get better at that. We can get better at dealing with very, very sick people, better at dealing with people who mm. who really are, are at risk. Uh, because at the moment, I feel as though my skills are becoming too general. I'm a little bit less good at all the very uh, serious stuff, and I'm getting a little bit better at the, le- you know, um, at more 
general sort of presentations. Mm. And I don't think that's providing patients with that specialist service that the emergency department's supposed to be. So when you talk about where I see the model, I see uh, us as being emergency department as being definitive, a form of definitive care get seen by a general practitioner, can make their mind up whether they need any kind of secondary care. Uh, a lot of GPs can deal with things themselves. Uh, if they do feel that they need secondary care, can refer them directly, get them straight to an orthopedic ward, straight to a medical ward, straight to a surgical ward. But if that patient's in trouble, needs urgent emergency care, we're right behind the door. And I think that's where I see the future. So so largely I agree with it. And I think it, uh, some of that is the fact that people develop better relationships don't they because they work with people more so it's a lot easier to refer to you because you know i know you and uh, you know you've got a bit more credibility as well when you work in an emergency department um i think that i think that a really strong headwind going forward is actually recruiting and retaining gps to do that because um you know so even this week i've had um people who i respect and my saying you know david you're a gp um, this is what GPs do. They work in the community. They don't do streaming. They don't do things that involve secondary care. And they don't do, you know, they, they don't treat people at half past 10 at night with a mal finger deformity, which is fine because actually a lot of GPs don't do that. But maybe this is the new model. But um, my points are, I think you need to recruit, retain and appreciate NHS staff massively a great deal more. And this is low hanging fruit, but, you know, the the emergency care guys during COVID did a great job and worked really, really hard from the paramedics and the HCAs upwards. The government has, has, has got a legacy in failing to recruit people into primary care. It's never really addressed that. And I think they had 60 full-time equivalents um, uh, between the period of 2015 to 2020 when they wanted 5,000 new GPs and I think the figures that I saw last week uh, were that they had they'd lost 672 full-time equivalent GPs uh, from that figure so um, not only are they failing to recruit um, people are dropping off and for us I mean I hate the term skill mix but these are the guys that you want to make you a partner you know partnership in primary care is really hard and you need these guys you've got 20 25 30 years experience 15 years experience whatever to tell you what to do when you don't know what to do and that's you know all all medicine isn't it it's um it's an apprenticeship and we're all apprentices until we retire every everyone either side of this microphone is we're just on maybe slightly different paths and and you need to find the person who you can learn from and it's very very hard where pension requirements, uh, you know, qualies, quaffs, everything else gets in the way. Because at the end of the day, the patients just want to be treated. And I appreciate that doing kind of preventative care about blood pressure targets is important. But actually, I think it's a lot, a lot more important to train the GPs who want to be the GPs of the future, who want a yes. partnership model, who want to do these things, who want to step into the floor. Because I'll tell you what, there aren't that many of them. I think there's also a problem with GP training and recruitment. I see this as a non-GP. I don't know much about GP training and recruitment, so I'm probably speaking out of order, but this is how I see things. One of the problems with general practice is the training, I believe, is too short. And the reason I, I say that is for a couple of different reasons. The first reason is that if training is short, I believe that sometimes you are attracting um, practitioners who are not 
in their heart general practitioners. So what you're doing is somebody just wants to have that certificate of completion of training that can be done with three years in general practice. So you don't get somebody who is a career GP. So I think that's one of the problems. Secondly, general practice to me is the most difficult medical occupation of them all. GPs work, they work part as practices, but often they're working on their own. Um, they can be presented with absolutely anything. They can be presented with things outside of their comfort zone. They're having to risk manage, make decisions on some very, very bizarre things at times. Very difficult occupation. To my mind, general practice suits practitioners with experience. But GP training is short, so a lot of GPs are actually graduating as fully qualified GPs. With five years postgraduate experience, I think, that means you leave medical school, you do two years basically internship, you know, your primary or your foundation training, and then you do a three-year general practice course, and then you are an independent GP. Whereas if you look to do emergency medicine, surgery, normally you have to do those two years foundation training in six or seven years, I believe, on top of that specialist training. Um so I, you know, I see that as a problem. I understand we need more GPs, so we want to try and get people through the mill as fast as possible. But this quality as well as quantity. And sometimes I think that if the training was longer, maybe it would filter out people who really want to be a GP. If I really wanted to be a GP, I'd do the six-year training if, if, if that's what GP training became. If I wasn't that bothered about being a GP and I could do six years and be a medic or six years and be a rheumatologist, six years be a GP, six years be an ENT surgeon, I might choose where really I felt as I wanted to be. But I think that general practice might be attracting, I won't say the wrong kind of people, but people whose hearts are not in it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, so as I think as an ex-orthopedic surgeon who, who kind of... Um, jump ship i think it's an interesting perspective um what i would say is that i think um having a fairly extensive experience of secondary care training and i would be a bit reluctant to extend this to emergency medicine but i, I don't think it'd be the most controversial step is that um i think um there's a culture of training and training practices whereby they uh, they own their tra trainees it's more relationship driven and certainly in my experience, uh, you have much, much healthier relationships to the extent that um, I still go out for dinner with my ex-trainers uh, and, you know, I, I WhatsApped one of my other out-of-hours trainers today. So I think it's something that carries on. It's more of a covenant, you know, rather than something that's um, contractual. Um, I would say that... Um, you do get debriefed and you can get, if you need it, you have debriefs in the morning and the afternoon as an ST1. I had a lot of debriefs. Uh, and then um, I think by ST3 though, I think you, you are given enough rope to hang yourself. And I think, but also one of the big advantages of, of primary care training is that actually you do form established relationships. So your trainer knows what you can do. You you trust your trainer too. So actually, it's it's an incredibly synergistic relationship. And I to the extent that I think that I think maybe emergency medicine would do that if you did sandwich things where you do year one away, year two home, year three away, year four home. Do you know what I mean? To, to, so you form a relationship with a person who's going to be there for a while with mm. you because it's so so much better. Um, 
than the sum of its parts. It really is completely. So um, I would say with a degree of confidence that um, I think in that sense, GP training is, is unpra- unparalleled. And, and and you get like a legacy delivery because as I say, I, I can f- call my old trainers and say, you know, what would you do with this? I mean, what, what's different? So um, yes, what you're saying is true, but actually in, in the best sense, it just it gives you a ticket to be a better doctor for a longer time and you can talk to people and actually if you've got those those skills and you, you'll push them on you'll f- maybe find that practice where you just you know everyone realizes you're an apprentice do you, do you not feel though it might be slightly different to you because one of the things that, that i notice about our own trainees in emergency medicine is there is a, a maturity that comes with training that you don't actually teach people but they develop a, a gestalt and insight into their patients uh the ability to risk manage you know when we get patients who are very very junior all they want to do is bloods and x-rays because they don't feel safe unless the bloods and the x-rays are negative and but as they progress through their training they start to become less dependent on the test they're more uh, confident in their own clinical ability and they develop a maturity an ability to uh, you know to recognize unwellness to have confidence to deal with things to have confidence to risk manage uh, patients and that but that takes years to come now that's something you would have already have had being a, a registrar working in orthopedics you will have gained that sense of maturity with your decision making whether you realized it or not and this is something i see a lot of uh, amongst uh, when we get trainees in the emergency department who do come from other specialities themselves they always seem to come with that more mature mindset over decision making you will have had that so i guess your general practice training um would have equipped you with all those extra skills you know you didn't have to reach that level of maturity but if you get sometimes younger doctors coming into it who've come straight in from medical school done their training do you feel as though they've had enough time to reach that level of clinical maturity and the ability to be able to to decision make confidently in just three years training i think you've made a very elegant point but i would slightly disagree with it um i think that what you get from primary care is that you understand the relationship that a doctor has with a patient and i i didn't like uh health consultation models like you know doctor as patient and uh you know pendleton and all these things but i think there's truth somewhere in there i'd be really reluctant to um make a surrogacy of secondary care relationships in in healthcare to primary care yeah. relationships because they're not the same things um and and it sounds really it sounds really defamatory to secondary care doctors but if you've got a good relationship with a your patient in primary care they will literally walk off the plank for you right like they they love you to bits and you have a, a kind of a, an all, all, almost emotional loyalty to them too so actually like you develop relationships with them i mean uh this isn't the time for kind of um kind of uh you know stories or whatever but um i uh, i i worked in one of my final training practices and i'm 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 quite tall and and one of the patients that i talked to wasn't wasn't even five feet and he said to me on one occasion he said oh, i really like you but i think you're gonna die and i was like why is that he said because i had a doberman and he was a big dog and he didn't even make 10 <laughs> uh there's truth in that there's <laughs> there is. so maybe i've only got a few short years left yeah but um, it's been a pleasure knowing you david <laughs> thank you very much i mean uh, i'd like to make it out the door but you know so like patients find these things in you and they find a bit of truth and they find a bit of humanity so actually you you, you develop entirely different relationships that you just uh just a really oblique you know maybe it's just covid or something but 
you know, people do find these kind of hu- this humanity that's a bit deeper lying. And I, I, I can't speak for all, all secondary care practitioners, but it's, it was completely, completely different. And, um, you know, it's not always complimentary, you know. I mean, I'm, I don't think I'm a great Doberman or great Dane or whatever, but... Look, you know, I think it, uh, relationships interesting. I think that's fairly ubiquitous throughout healthcare. You know, I've often said that, uh, you know, even doing what I do, working in emergency medicine, a relationship with the patient is key because, um, uh, and especially if they can identify that the advice that you're giving them, you're giving them to actually try and help them. And often we will get in the emergency department uh, people presenting with things that we're probably not best placed to help them with. Uh, but I think if doctors have uh, the line that, I'm sorry, sir, you're in the wrong place, you shouldn't have come to the emergency department with your three-month-old knee pain, mm. um, off you go back to your GP, um, you know, you, you don't do that patient a, a great deal of good, you don't do the health care service a great deal of good, you don't do yourself any favours at all. Uh, you know, the approach, often there's the approach that I will have is to generate a relationship with that patient, assure that patient that it is in my interest to try and help them, but the reason that I'm now signposting them to a different healthcare practitioner is nothing to do with the fact that they're, uh, they've done something they shouldn't have done. You know, I was quite happy to see that patient. I'm not the best practitioner to help you with that. GPs are much better with these kind of things, these chronic knee issues. It might be something I don't know about. And that GP, if he feels as though it's exceeding his level of ability to help you with it, will refer you to the right doctor. And I think if you develop those relationships with patients, they understand you're trying to help them, but if they don't think that you're trying to get rid of them. So relationships key. And it's also key, um, you know, I think in patients understanding your limitations as a person as as well as a professional. We have this issue in emergency care of um, misdiagnosis, if if that's the right mm. word, whereas patients feel as though we've misdiagnosed them in the emergency department. And fractures might be one of those where, um, you know, a patient may come in with an injury, we look at the x-ray, we can't see anything on the x-ray, uh, and we send them away. And it turns out two weeks later, they come back and there was actually a fracture on there. It was quite subtle. It's more obvious now two weeks later. And they'll say we've misdiagnosed. And that can lead us open to things like complaints and the hospital open to complaints and to the patient feeling as though they've had a bad service. Whereas in actual fact, if you address each fracture um, and let the patient know the limitations of what you're able to do in the emergency department, how difficult it is to read an x-ray, that these sometimes there are fractures on there that we don't see, but we do safety net for these. And if there's further problems in a week or two weeks' time to come back and we'll, we'll re-x-ray. And I think this kind of relationship between you and your patient is vital so that they see that uh, that they are getting good care within the limitations of what we're able to provide as real people as well. So, yeah, it's so not it's, that much different to general practice, maybe. I think in GP, you'd call that sharing responsibility. And I think there's truth there because I do that actually as a GP who interprets these things and say, look, I think this is probably the case, but... Um, I might well be wrong, and um, but if I am wrong, then what I'm wrong about is probably not likely to affect your care. And um, I think that's true. I think it's it's about sharing risk, actually. And um, and uh, you know, you don't want to sit here being the new GP saying, "Oh gosh, it's all it's sunny uplands." But I think 
the way that they communicate risk to patients and the way that they share risk is something that hospital doctors don't do very well yeah. and they're very biomedical about it and i think if you if you change that and develop that then you would probably have fewer communication problems and you would be more well liked because all patients really want is the truth and they will share your yes. risk with you um and and they won't blame you if you get it wrong yeah, and, and I absolutely agree with that. And, you know, shared risk, shared decision making, you know, as, as I've mentioned before, I'm a fan of the Choosing Wisely campaign. If anybody's never come across that, it's a, it's a campaign um, for healthcare professionals and patients to, uh, to question test treatments and procedures that are being recommended, uh, to question, to discuss them with your healthcare practitioner, uh, and to engage in shared decision making. It is important that, uh, you know, uh, you know, this is what we'd probably call, you know, sort of more patient-centered care. Traditionally, doctors in, in a life of the past, you know, used to make decisions on behalf of patients, which is uh, something that I'm very much against. These days, our role is to uh, discuss, to inform, is to impart that knowledge on patients and make decisions together rather than for them. I agree with that. I think actually um, medical paternalism is something that medical education is hate, but actually uh, a lot of patients, particularly in more rural populations, actually love. So I think there's a place for everything, isn't there? And medical paternalism isn't isn't a bad one either, but it's just, it's, um, you're a chef and you have a menu and and you're you're giving that patient that option and, and that isn't a bad thing either. So, you know, if, if they want a lot of shared management, then fine, you, you give them that. And if if they want a bit of reassurance, say, look, I don't think your leg's going to drop off and it's Friday night, then is that a crime? I always find it interesting It's because I'm a big believer in shared decision-making, but then you sit down uh, sometimes and you explain the options and the risks and the benefits to patients, and at the end of it you say, so what would you like to do? And they just say, whatever you say, Doc. <laughs> you feel like the world's most honest car dealer, don't you? You're like, um, I could do this. And then what would you do? Would you have the seats? Would you have the air con? You know, is, is, the, is, the, is the variable kind of cruise control important to me? Uh, but uh, do you know what? Like engaging with them and getting to that space where they're like, oh, what would you do? That's, that is useful. Yeah, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I will, um, I will, um, I will impose on you. My favourite quote is by a guy called William Bruce Cameron. I'm going to find it because I always misquote it. So do bear with me. Um, and it is that um, not everything that counts can be counted, and not everything that can be counted counts. And I think that's really true because the value that you add to a system doesn't fit a metric. It doesn't live into a quarterly spreadsheet, etc all of these things and and just because you can measure something it isn't important but the measurables are immense and i think in covid having visited people who have had to be honest fairly fairly hard deaths because of cancer Mm. uh you know and had paucity of access in 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 you know provincial circumstances it's they're hard miles they're not easy miles and um you know giving medicines that you wouldn't have given in your training, etc. It's not easy, but um, it doesn't mean that just because you do it and you spend two or three hours with that patient that it's not worthwhile. Yeah, and 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 this is the thing. Like, uh, I don't like the term bean counters. I think it's not helpful, but I think everyone needs to come together and work out what why the state pays us to do the job we do. And I think a lot of people lose sight of that. 
Do you find then, it sounds like, you know, you, there's a lot in your job. Are you able to do this within 10 minutes? What do you feel about the 10-minute consultation that, that general practitioners are trying to work by? I think it's dead. <laughs> um, because I think everyone does phone consults. That's been my yeah. experience. So I think peri or post COVID, I, I don't know. It's not been... So if we're on the trust tree, and I know that tens of thousands of people have listened to it, I, I don't think I ever did one. I, of course, I did in real time, but my training practice said, oh, you know, do do them for a fortnight to prove you can do it. But um, you know, like it wasn't a show. And I don't think if you do them in 12 minutes, it's a sin. And if you do a few in eight minutes, and it's a problem either. So yes. I think it was a, a birch that you could be hit with quite easily. I don't think it's fair. It's not kind. There's a lot of complexity. And also, if you, increasingly, if you employ other people to um, what would be perceived as the, the lower-hanging fruit of primary care, uh, you know, pre-COVID throat, like urties and stuff, and... Um, then they were two or three minute consults, so actually it, it kind of all just worked out. So, yeah, balanced out and things. Yeah, so, so. I, I think um, no, I think it it, it I, as as much as I have understood, it wasn't really held up by other other international models. Um, it was it was pretty intense. Um, right. It wasn't yeah. fair because I always thought I was challenging. You know, I speak to my juniors and. Um, uh, I expect my senior registrars to make decisions within 30 minutes. And then I, re- I remind them the GPs are supposed to do it in 10 minutes. So, you know. They, so, they do know, know them, though, generally. Yeah, them. yeah. Well, what about then um, sort of relationship with patients in general practice? I've, a criticism I've heard from patients coming into the emergency department of general practice is they don't feel as though they have a GP anymore. Uh, and a lot of them say, you know, they've got a general practice surgery, but when they go in there, they can be seen by any of the uh, employees of the practice. And I kind of picked up from some people that they like to be Dr. Wordsworth's patients. And uh, do you feel as though there's still an appetite for that or are patients happy to be seen by anybody in uh, in a practice? I, th- I think, again, I think this is a bit a slightly more academic, but I think patients find the doctors and doctors find the patients. Yeah. And you maybe get a narrative around that. So certainly... Uh, I'm sure there are patients I've seen once and they never want to see them again. And equally, uh, you know, your you, you patients really like you. So I think it's, it's a bit complex. Um, I think it can be hard to find a doctor that a lot of, of patients like. But whether that's healthy for that doctor yes. is is another mason. There's a, I can't quote this source, but there's something about uh, one of the GP models about the doctor as a drug which is where the you don't you, you counsel them and you give them independence and you you uh, divest them of doctor dependency, but they like you for it. So yes. there's always a tension actually because the difference between secondary and primary care is you're going to see them again and again and again. So you have to manage that relationship yes. where you see them again and again and again, and and that isn't a bad thing. So you need to like them, um, and you, you genuinely hopefully, uh, but if they like you too much they'll always want to see you so when you go on holiday oh i don't want to see dr jones i just want to see dr wordsworth so or you know uh, dr ahmed in my in my case everyone wants to see him at the practice that i'm at at the moment so uh, do, do you know what i mean like um there's a tension there that i think you only really realize when you do a lot of primary care 
I think it's quite interesting. When I worked in uh, rural Australia, as you probably know for a while, and uh, as an emergency doctor, but in rural Australia, you're also expected uh, to do a form of general practice out there because it's rural and, and uh, um, you know, they don't have the GP service uh, for everybody. So uh, modicum of general practice, because I'm not a general practitioner, but uh, I do know I had this one patient who came in once who'd seen me prior, came in, sat and waited outside for about an hour, came I mean, just to sit down and tell me that she felt much better and she was very thankful for <laughs> what I've done for her, <laughs> which I thought that's a very GP-esque kind of thing because mm-hmm. people don't only do that to emergency doctors, you know. Nice. And stuff, nice. so. I, this, this is the thing. is I think it's really uh, amusing how general practice gets like a really bad press that you always perpetually uh, put up on and things and et cetera. Um, it's, at points, it can be amazingly rewarding. Like it is literally the best job in medicine that I've ever done. Okay. Uh, by by miles. Like, yeah, you know, I've done a bit of emergency, a bit of orthopedics, I've put people's pelvises back together, etc. When they like what you've done for them, yes. oh my good Lord, it is just uh, an intellectual sugar rush. And I'm not, I'm a bit of an INTJ, so I'm not really that bothered, yes. truth be known. But um, it is, it's incredibly rewarding. It is a great yes. job, actually. And, and they do like you and they do appreciate you and they won't see anyone else. And, I don't know, maybe we're all like kind of these, uh, I, I, don't even, I don't know the term, but it is nice to be wanted. Yes. So not, but not, not, not too much. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Not yeah. half an hour in the outback, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. Fantastic. Anything else you want to cover, David, at all? I think maybe the truth is a bit more blended care. I think it's maturity of urgent care systems and um and 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 expanding that scope because I don't think we know what urgent care means, do we, or ambulatory or whatever. They, these are all fairly uh, interchangeable terms. So it's it's about like um do you want your GP to see your minor appendicular fractures and are they gonna start seeing your shoulder dislocations and or your your do you know what I mean, your 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 limb injuries because there aren't that many people with that skill set. Uh, they don't, you know, I, 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 I'm not that person to be too critical, but I think the Royal College of Medicine has abandoned minors. But yes. I'll tell you what, for the people that have minor injuries, they're not minor to them. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, And there's yeah. a tribe of AMPs and EMPs who don't feel valued and don't feel empowered and et cetera. And we need to bring them back into the fold as a matter of urgency because, you know, um, if they're truly ambulatory, then actually the government currently thinks that they're very important and they don't want people who don't need a trolley being in their emergency department. So yes. the obvious answer to that is that we resource and we address and we train those people um, and, and we develop these services so they can actually truly be streamlined into mm. to appropriate pathways. Well, it's strong. I mean, I've seen a, a change in the approach towards... Uh, minor injuries i don't know whether it's sometimes things are just different in different hospitals that you work in but i've always loved minor injuries minor injuries to me is very rewarding mm. because you get people come in hurt worried about what they've got you know they've got a broken bone wondered worrying about whether they're going to need to, to go to surgery how long they'll recover and a lot of pain and you can fix them reassure them make them feel better often even though they've got a cast on they'll go over the smile feeling much better and things extremely rewarding work but what i've noticed now as an emergency doctor is we're not seeing so much of it and it's like our own trainees uh traditionally in the past the people that you used to put into the minor injuries unit were your registrars because 
Um, they were very, very quick. They get a lot of exposure to it. They learned to do minor injuries very, very quickly. They got very competent with x-rays and treatments. Uh, and then they could number crunch through a lot of these very, very quickly. Now I find that my registrars are inexperienced with it. They don't get the exposure to it. Uh, you've got a lot of EMPs in there who kind of seem to be abandoned. They don't have a registrar or a consultant to go to because even some of the consultants, I think, are now sort of de-skilling from that point of view. And I think it's a shame because, as I said, we in the UK, it's accident and emergency, and they've always been kissing cousins, if you like. Mm. And um, and I've particularly enjoyed that. And sometimes when I was a little bit fed up, when I was feeling a little bit overworked, I'd go and, and spend an hour or two in minor injuries. I really used to enjoy that. So it's a, it's a shame if it looks like it's getting abandoned by the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. I do feel at the hospital I'm working in, um, um, it's it's been orphaned a little bit. It's becoming separate and where mm-hmm. it's going to go, whether it goes to general practice, whether we retain control of it, I've no idea. That's for the decision makers. But it's a shame if, if we do lose it because um, yeah, I like the rotations through it. It is a bit of a shame because... That is, uh, some, looking at, you know, my DJH figures, it's between 30 to 50% sometimes of their footfall. And I we, we, we live in a kind of, um, like a touristy area, so you get a lot of a lot more things where they're truly ambulatory. But, um, you know, um, just because they're minor and trivial in parentheses, they're not trivial to them and um, they're high volume and they need to be appropriately resourced and... and you kind of, as you say, you, you, they can often feel like they they are the appendage to the big boys. But actually, do you know what? Um, you know, not everyone's a fast jet fighter, and f- flying the Hercules is of great utility too. Mm. And I think um, some of the people who do kind of metaphorically fly the Hercules don't always feel that they're equally valued. And I think it's a real pity actually because mm. um, there's skill in it. There's not in it. Um, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of explanation. It's not easy sometimes, and um, I'd miss it if I didn't do it to the extent that um, I'd probably take a bit of a financial hit to Karen doing it, but I do like it. Mm. And it's, it's a bit different from GP, you know, you know, you get to reduce risks, et cetera. And, um, you know, uh, appendicular injuries, it's, it's nice. You know, yeah, it's, that's right. It just makes it feel a bit more. More procedural as well. Oh, of I course. Kind of yeah, yeah. Love the, love the procedural side of things. And I, I've often said that, you know, I used to speak uh, to an agency I was working through and said, if you never get me a job just working in a minor injuries unit for a while, I'd I'd, I'd be all over that, really kind of enjoy that and mm. things. So, um, so things are ch- definitely changing on the front door of the emergency department. As I said, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine say it's a brand. It's there to, uh, they say it attracts patients i'm not sure that's what we're supposed to be doing but that's almost the way that they've looked at it that people turn to that brand when they want to come for healthcare, uh, and they say that we should be doing something and we should be utilizing that brand i think it's an interesting way to look at healthcare myself and i can't say i quite agree with the mentality of calling it a brand but definitely uh footfalls increasing i think through the front door of well, I keep calling it the emergency department, but certainly the door now between emergency, urgent treatment centre, minor injuries. Um, and I think we've got to find a way together, different disciplines, emergency medicine doctors, general practitioners, um, you know, minor injuries, people, uh, acute general practice, if, if that's a real term. Um, I need to find a way of working together, I think, and uh, filtering and flowing patients correctly between us. 
I, I, I don't think this is uh, an immeasurably complex problem that doesn't have a solution. It might involve a bit of rotation, it might involve a bit of fluidity, but I think if this doesn't work, it will be a problem with the doctors, not really the patients. And it will be probably more so it will be a problem in the systems because if you have a bit of rotation and fluidity, because at the end of the day, if you really distill it down, it's like the state pays for the healthcare of its citizens. And then we create structures that either empower or restrict uh, delivery of that. So if you had someone who did a day a week and then did, you know, another few days a week in primary care, then that would improve his, him as a primary care physician. Uh, it would give more awareness. You would get better structural relationships with the people who refer in i've never had a problem ever as a gp referring patients into secondary care because they know me uh, so you know you can pick up the phone to them and i think that's been as old as history hasn't mm. it really so um let's not relearn those old lessons of the past but actually i think some kind of fluidity about that and not silo working so the last question then before we get out of things, uh, this is something I'm a believer in now. Uh, I might have mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but I did six months uh, in general practice. Mm. I think I mentioned it to, talking to you before. I, I worked with uh, what I thought was a very inspirational uh, general practice. Um, and the lessons that I learned there were, were immeasurable. I mean, they, you know, they taught me how to manage things without needing bloods, how to risk manage things, uh, how to consider uh, other aspects of patient injury, such as injury on their time. Um, you know, I always remember a practitioner saying to me, look, Sean, you might feel safe bringing that patient back in three days' time, but they might have to get a taxi in that costs them £10 out of their £50 a week pension. They might be at work, have to take a day off. They might have to get three buses and a train to get in. Um, so I remember being taught about sort of patient injury, patient experience, patient journey. And patient journey is one of those things uh, that I'm quite passionate about. So I actually find that my six months in general practice was extraordinarily beneficial and it has shaped my practice as an emergency practitioner. I feel as though I'm better competent than, than a, a lot of colleagues in making decisions to get people home, mm. uh, to get them treated in the community, to treat them without having to do the obligatory chest X-ray and panel of bloods. Do you feel as though um, people who work in general practice as part of their curriculum, it should be to spend six months working in uh, in the emergency department? Oh, God, completely, yeah, absolutely. Um I think I, I think they're almost extensions of the same practice because it is a construct that's delineated by primary and secondary care, isn't it? Uh, the patients don't come up and say, oh, I didn't want to see my GP, with the exception of maybe feeling that they need an x-ray. So, yeah, I completely agree with that. I think what you're describing, some GPs would use, uh, would say using time as a tool. And actually a very good friend of mine is... Uh, you know, works at a high level for a bank and he's talking about opportunity cost, isn't he? Because the, the thing that the patient is doing to visit you, he's not doing something else and, and, and equally you're not either. So I think that's very, very high level thinking. Um, yeah, completely. I think, um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to use the term all, but what I would say is that the Venn diagram of primary, and, primary, primary care and emergency medicine is... It's so overlapped and 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 so dependent uh, that um, there's that it, it's never a bad idea to have a very intimate relationship with both of them, and, and it makes me a better GP and a better emergency physician to have kind of like a finger in both pies. And I I I I get a lot out of 
being in with both of them too. Fantastic. So I think then the message of the day at the end is that uh, GPs and emergency physicians and things, we need to communicate more, need to work together more. Uh, anyway, thank you very much. You've been listening to the Think Healthcare podcast. I'm Dr. Sean Favel. I've been talking to Dr. David Wordsworth, GP, emergency medicine registrar, orthopedic surgeon, you name it, he's done it. Thank you very much, David. It was a pleasure to, to talk to you today. 